autism, where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome listeners and viewers. This week we have with us Mary Beth Stark, who has been a speech and language pathologist for over 40 years. She is a DIR expert training leader and she is with Floor Time Atlanta. Welcome, Mary Beth. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, it's great to finally have you here. I know I've seen some presentations of yours through my ICDL training. Uh, that's the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, the DIR model, DIR Floor Time. And recently, the ICDL newsletter put out a uh, special piece by Mary Beth about pre-linguistics and social problem solving. So I wanted to do a podcast about this because it's such an important piece that we talk about at Affect Autism about the, the early social emotional uh, capacities and pre-linguistics is a specific piece of that. Uh, the, the, the piece that Mary Beth wrote was called Pre-Linguistics. It puts the social in social problem solving. So why don't we first discuss, Mary Beth, what exactly do you mean by pre-linguistics? Well, simply put, pre-linguistics are skills that kids have to have before they start to use language. Um, they could be, there's a whole list of things and generally, um, people think of joint attention, but a while joint attention, which is your ability to uh, ref know that somebody else is referring to something that you're looking at, so that two people are attending to the same thing, while that's really, really important, other things that are important are eye contact and shared attention and um, initiation and contingent response and closing circles and all that stuff that we talk about in DIR, those are also pre-linguistic skills. All right, um, I, I know that in the piece, uh, you go into quite a bit of depth about how a lot of people think of pre-linguistic skills as a bedrock for this type of communication, but you really focused in on how they are also really pre-social abilities uh, to be mastered to really just to be able to interact with people in general and then you specifically bring it into the pieces of the DIR model specifically the fourth functional emotional developmental capacity where this is where a lot of things come together for kids in the DIR model and um, my own son is ten and a half and it took him years to get here but he's right in there in FEDC 4 right now so this is especially meaningful to me as I watch his communication develop. And um, where would be the best place to start when we describe the importance of not just this bedrock for communication, like you said, but, but just the whole social piece? Well, I think to really to begin talking about that, let's talk about what good communication is. Good communication is when a person has an idea, can convey it to somebody else, and that person understands what they're saying, and then that person who has gotten that message can turn around and say something back, 
and then the initial the initial speaker becomes the responder and it can go back and forth so a person is reciprocal they're on the same topic they take turns initiating and responding and it's a successful interact interaction meaning that the interaction is over when both people are done not when just one person is done but when both people are done so it's not about just the ability to talk it's about the ability the ability to be heard and to hear what other people are saying so i like how you bring that in um, because we always focus on wanting our children our autistic children or children that have uh, speech and communication uh, developmental differences challenges they, we want them to be able to communicate with us what's going on but you're taking it a step further and saying we also don't want it to just be the child who comes up and, and barrages us with a series of questions uh, without listening for the response I noticed that my son will do that a lot well I'll start talking to him about something and then he'll just interrupt me and just start talking about something else so he's not quite there yet but he at, is at the place where he can now start to tell us a lot of things that are going on with him, which he couldn't do even a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's the kind of thing, I, thing I'm talking about. And I don't know your son, but from what you describe, he sounds like his reciprocal interactions weren't as strong as they might have been when he was, you know, when he was younger to really get into level four work um, in, a, in a strong way, because it's reciprocity that allows a child to be able to pay more attention to the other person. It's reciprocity to know when another, when another person starts to look bored. It's reciprocity to understand that you have to listen as well as respond. So reciprocity is, is a huge level as well. And there's more to reciprocity than just back and forth. There's a whole lot of pre-linguistic skills that are used during reciprocity that help one become a better communicator going forward. So what are some of those skills? So some of the pre-linguistic skills I'm talking about it are, for example, I mean, we, we could go to that chart now. Sure. Um, so Mary Beth has a chart that was included with that newsletter, and I'm going to share it now. So we have here on the left, for those that are listening, I'll try and, and say what it is, but I'll also direct you to affectautism.com. If you search Mary Beth Stark, you will find the blog post that I will do a write-up about this podcast. and. Otherwise, you can check out the YouTube video where you'll be able to see this. So it says the functional emotional developmental capacities that we talk about here at Affect Autism in the DIR floor time um, approach. And they are listed along the left here in reverse order. So starting from the bottom as regulation is the first capacity, engagement, then that two-way communication, that reciprocity you're talking about, social problem solving, emotional ideas, up to emotional thinking where we want our children to, to be at a place, neurotypically uh, children get there before they start kindergarten. And then on the right side, she has down pre-linguistic competence. So what are all of the, the pre-linguistic competencies or capacities that we want our children to have when they're in each of these developmental levels? Well, what I have listed there are just some 
but as I discuss it, I'll, I'll add some more. Okay. So, so when kids are, when children are just born or when typically developing children are born, the first level that they need to develop mastery in is regulation, which is to be calm and attentive. And when a child is calm and attentive, they demonstrate shared attention with, with an adult or an important person in their life, and they can demonst demonstrate some eye gaze. When they become interested, so they're calm, attentive, and interested now, they become engaged. When they're engaged, they have sustained eye contact so that they can hold someone's eye gaze for a while. They, they start to demonstrate facial expressions. They start to demonstrate a range of emotions and, or a range of affect. So babies, um, you know, are typically calm or upset. And it's through the regulation with their mom that allows them to calm down. As they develop, we start to see a range in their emotions. So babies are upset, they can be calm, they can smile, they can start to laugh. And these are all, you know, between zero and six months. You start to see a variety of different um, affects. You can see a baby start to get concerned. You can see a baby um, looking um, nervous. And it's, it's this range of affect that kids develop when they're younger that makes a big deal on how they develop. Because if you don't have that emotional range, then when you're older, if, you, if there are things that upset you and you go from calm to really upset and dysregulated, it's difficult to move from that spot because you're upset. As anybody, when they're really upset, it's hard for them to think. So what a typically developing baby can do is start to have these different emotions and be able to deal with them. So the, the emotions, it's, it's a very fluid thing. Um, when, a, when a child gets to uh, reciprocity or the third functional emotional developmental capacity, that's when they start to be in a back and forth interaction with, with a, 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 an emotional caregiver. Now they're not talking yet, but they're using eye gaze and they're observing and they're watching what the adult does. Um, they can sometimes imitate uh, vocal noises. They watch what the parent is doing. They demonstrate different facial expressions. They can respond consistently or start to respond consistently. So if mom comes in and smiles, the baby will respond by a smile. If mom comes in and says, oh, hello, baby, well, the baby might go, ah, so the baby's responding. Um, the baby at this point also can initiate an interaction. So depending on how old the baby is, at, you know, between two and six months, babies start to cry when they're upset with the intention of getting somebody's attention. Now, that's, this doesn't happen right away, but over time, with the um, experience of reciprocity, they start to develop intention. When they develop intention, um, 
that's really when communication starts because that's when they're thinking I'm, I, I'm doing this to achieve a certain effect. And typically in their world, what they're thinking of is somebody will come and help them. Somebody will feed them. Somebody will change their diapers. Somebody will look at them. Somebody will play with them and they use whatever they can at that point to start those interactions going. But what's important to realize and what the pre-linguistic skill is, is that they use, they might use their legs kicking to demonstrate some type of communication. They might use their arms flailing to demonstrate communication. They make noises, they use eye contact, but they respond fairly consistently. They can initiate fairly consistently. And though the back and forth starts with maybe a back and forth and then the baby looks away. When the baby gets stronger and stronger at this, they can stay in a back and forth interaction um, for a while and enjoy it. And, it's, and the learning how to communicate happens in this reciprocity, in the back and forth, in the watching, in the listening, in seeing how other people react and figuring out how they can initiate. It's a huge, it's a huge deal that um, as a speech and language therapist, um, I don't know if we give enough attention to because it's important not only that new communicators um, do this, but I work with a lot of kids now who are verbal and who um, can have a conversation but they're not good at reciprocity and they're not good at consistently responding and they're not good at looking when I'm talking and they're not good at responding to tone of voice and all of those things that I'm talking about are things that happen or that begin to happen before nine months of age. So before we get into the higher capacities, we've just focused on those first three so far, um, how, I mean, this is what my blog post is about at Affect Autism. I've talk to many different DIR specialists about this, but I love hearing the, the different take from different professionals. So um, listeners will get to hear your take on this. When our kids are not babies and they, they are autistic or have other developmental challenges that prevent them from having these capacities, but they're 10 years old or however old they might be, Maybe they're 16, maybe they're five. Um, and you mentioned, might be very verbal, but they're missing these. It's so much harder for parents to understand what to do. And I know that um, Gene Christian brought up something that I had never heard before that I thought was really interesting. He said that because the parts of the brain that allow you to remember haven't formed yet at these early stages, we ourselves don't really have a memory of learning those early social capacities. So it, it's really so important for us to focus in on them because it just happened automatically with us before we even were starting to develop memories. So my earliest memory might be when I'm three or four years old. So I don't remember being a baby learning these skills. So to be able to work on this with our son and of course, you know, we say in DIR floor time, it's all about affect. We've got to use that affect to get those skills going. And certainly the way an OT will do that will be a little different from the way a, a 
special educator will do that will be a little bit different than a speech language pathologist will do that. But what are your best tips on what do you do when you get that child who's verbal or even who's nonverbal who really hasn't mastered these early capacities yet? And, and let me add on one other thing, <laughs> because I know the hard part is that the kids with the sensory challenges, maybe it's hard to look. Like when I take a picture of my son, they'll say cheese, and it's really hard for him to look right at the camera, or it's really hard to look right in the eye. So when, when they communicate in a different way than us, um, how is it that we don't impose our neurotypical way of communicating while still getting in these capacities that are necessary for communication and and social problem solving that we get to in the higher capacities? Well, I think that those are, that's a really good question. Um, and before I answer that, what I'd like to talk about a little bit is something that, that you just brought up. And it has to do with development and sensory, uh, sensory motor issues and things that kids might have. Um, when babies are developing, when typically developing babies develop, um, they have a whole bunch of areas of development that are developing at the same time. So you have sensory motor, you have emotional, you have language, you have cognitive, um, and everything is developing in conjunction with one another. So it's not like your language develops and your sensory system develops and your cognitive system develops, but they, they, all, um, they all relate to each other. So if your sensory system is off, that's gonna influence your language. That's gonna influence your cognitive system. That's gonna definitely influence your emotional system. And so, one of the things that appeals most to me about DAR is they look at each child individually. And with that understanding that a sensory motor system influences language development so much, I think it's really important to realize what a child's sensory differences are. So for example, if you have a child, say on my caseload right now, I have a child who is uh, auditorily hypersensitive and his visual spatial system is off and he is uncomfortable moving through space he has a difficult time making eye contact he has a difficult time engaging for long periods of time now my job as a speech and language therapist is to help him talk but knowing what i know about dir i know that the first thing i need to do or the first thing that I want to do is that I want to relate to this little boy. So he came in to see me yesterday and he, he's echolalic, meaning he repeats everything that, he's, that he says. And to look at him, others would think that he's not really relating. But I, because I know the things that I know about him, I don't talk to him very loudly. I don't talk to him very much because it allows him time to process all the auditory information that I have. My goal is to build a relationship with him. So he, we were playing bubbles and I said something too loud. So what he said to me was, go to sleep Mary Beth. And what go to sleep Mary Beth from him means is be quiet. 
So, but what I did was, is I went to sleep and I just immediately went on the floor and started to snore. Well, then he thought that was funny. So I got up again and I blew a bubble and then he immediately said, go to sleep, Mary Beth. So then I went to sleep. So now we have a reciprocal interaction story. Um, then I woke up again and I stood up and I said, I'm tired, I'm gonna turn the lights off. And I went and I turned the lights off and I laid down and I fell asleep again. And then, and the little boy was now looking at me, he was giggling and he said, go to sleep, Mary Beth. And, but to me, what that meant was not necessarily go to sleep, but I'm starting this sequence, wake up, Mary Beth. So I woke up and that turned into a lights on, lights off, go to sleep, wake up, I do a tickle game. So now we had a long interaction going. And his language, though he was using words, I was responding to his intent. I wasn't responding necessarily to his words. But in that example, because at that point he was staying in one place, so that was easier on his neurological system and his visual motor system. Um, I wasn't talking terribly loudly. I wasn't talking a lot. He was leading the interaction. He was using um, words to initiate. I was responding. Um, I was also initiating. It was a lovely reciprocal interaction. We were giggling. We were laying on the pillow together. He was looking right at me from across a room and from five inches apart. But that's the beginning of communication. And it's that kind of thing you can also do with a 10-year-old, although we're not going to play night-night games. But we can start talking about what a child wants to talk about. And spend, and, and I will spend a good amount of time, for example, vacuum cleaners, a lot of time talking about vacuum cleaners, and then I might say something totally um, having nothing to do with vacuum cleaners, so that the boy I'm talking to looks at me like, "What?" And then I would say, "Oh, look, did I say something wrong? Your, you know, your face looks different." And then they might say something about that, and then we get into an interaction about that. But but it's through our our joint our joint interaction, our joint in interest, I'm able to challenge and change and help that child to think differently about communication. Did I ask, answer your question? I don't even remember what your question was. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think there's a couple of things that I see uh, parents having challenge with, A, not understanding how to play with their child, um, but B, thinking that there has to be some kind of lesson all the time, right? Yeah. And you're just describing just this simple interaction, playful interaction, and it's it's the easiest thing in the world, and it's the hardest thing for parents to think about what to do. They say, "I don't know what to do with my kid," and it's like you're just saying, "Oh, I'm going to sleep," and turning the lights off and on, and it's just that watching and doing that back and forth that's really training their brain to get those social circuits going. And, and I think, you know, everybody always wants to say, oh, can I see more examples of floor time? Can I see more examples of floor time? And I think the more that caregivers hear this and understand, um, even if you see a bunch of examples, it's always going to be spontaneous and specific to the child you're with. Because what works with one child won't necessarily work with another child 
won't necessarily work with another child, but at least having all these examples gives them ideas. Um, doing things like blowing bubbles with anticipation or, you know, um, and you mentioned the important thing is following their lead. Like you mentioned vacuum cleaners, like maybe this kid is totally into vacuum cleaners and you use that as the springboard to then do this kind of social interaction. But I notice the hardest part for a lot of parents that I see is um, letting the child's ideas come to you as opposed to telling them what to do. <laughs> right. Well, I think at, yeah, part of, of the challenge there is, particularly with kids that are verbal, when kids are verbal, people expect a certain level of thinking and a certain level of understanding. Now, I'm not, this has nothing to do with how intelligent a, a child is, but when a child is verbal, we assume they understand that two people are going to be in an interaction until both are satisfied. Lots of kids that are verbal that I work with, almost all kids that are verbal that I work with, don't understand that. The, the interaction is over when they're done. And it's the same thing with social problem solving. Part of um, one of the issues that many kids have in social problem solving is that they can't identify a problem, a social problem. They can identify when they have a problem. You know, they don't get what they want or they want to do something longer or somebody keeps asking them a question and they don't like it, they can understand their problem and they can try to solve their problem. But what is difficult is to see that somebody else might have a problem too. And that in social problem solving, both people have to solve a problem. And that you, and even if it's at the, at the beginning of social problem solving, even when you want something off a shelf, there's more to it than to say, I want that car. It, what that entails is you have, to, you have to have the idea, you have to get somebody's attention, you have to say it to somebody, you have to make sure that they heard you. If they didn't hear you, then you have to identify, oh, they didn't hear me, I have to fix that. You have to stand up, you have to get them, you have to take them to the shelf. You, you should have to stand there till they take it down. What happens, particularly with kids with language delay, is once they start to use words, words become magic. And then, they, then all of the foundational stuff of communication is lost. It's all about the words. So it's, I want the car. As soon as they see mom get up, then they start doing something else. Mom gets the car, mom brings it down. And that's how the world operates for them. And I get that because, you know, I totally, up, you know, kids should be reinforced when they say words, especially kids that are just starting to, to use language. But I think we skip the social part of that. We think that the words are the magical part and that once they have words, they'll understand all this foundational stuff we're talking about. But that's not the case. Many kids use words and words become magic. This is how I get stuff. I memorize these things and I use these words and that will get me things. And that does take you pretty far for a while. But when it comes, but when you use language that way, it's very difficult to think at a higher level than I want, I don't like, 
that kind of thing. It's all this stuff we're talking about, um, the back and forth and the watching somebody's reaction and the realizing that people don't think the way I think, which you get through reciprocity and watching. That's how you think higher and higher and higher. And um, to get to your original point that um, it's a challenge for parents to know what to do, I think it's because we all as a culture put so much um, value on words and they're valuable and I get that, but we don't, we don't, um, stress enough these pre-linguistic skills. And if we would, if we could be more comfortable giving ourselves the, um, allow ourselves to just play with our kids and not worry about the words, you know, the, the giggling and the running and the checking in and all that kind of stuff, even if you're playing hide and seek, it, to run around a house looking for your little boy when he, you know, he may be hiding in plain sight, but you pretend you can't see him and he, he's watching you and giggling, giggling every time you pass him up. That's where language starts. That's where words get meaning. It's in, that's where the magic is. For sure, that's where the magic is. It's not in the words, it's in the, the pre-linguistic interaction, relationship, affect part. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I had done a podcast, uh, sorry, a blog post a few years ago now about such an example, like say there's some toy on some shelf that a child wants. What you're going to do, uh, one example of a way you could do it, like, hmm, how, how are we going to get it, right? Oops. <laughs> and um, and, you know, Dr. Gil Tippy likes to say it's like having your foot on the gas and brake at the same time. So you don't want them to just sort of say, oh, she's not getting it for me and walk away. So then you want to entice them back like, oh, maybe we could use a chair if they don't come up with that idea. Or maybe they will. They'll say, here, stand on this chair or whatever. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. And then you'll be like, oh, oh, I can't reach. And so it's taking one thing, like walking over to the shelf, handing them a toy and stretching it out to like 20 minutes of playing and anticipating. And I know sometimes for parents that feels like, oh, I'm torturing my kid. My poor kid just wants this toy. And here I'm saying, oh, oh I can't reach it. That's so mean. But we're not being mean in a punishing kind of way. We're being playful and silly. Like you, you said, the giggling and stuff. I'm like, oh, Whoa, whoa, oh, I'm falling over, oh, or whatever. And then, oh, oh, I need, I know what I need, or whatever it is, and stretching it out and breaking it down into all these millions of steps and then giving it to like, yay, we got it. And then having that look of shared joy, like accomplishment, we did something together. So they feel that, that uh, we solved this problem together. Um, and, and that's a hard part for parents, but but yeah, like what you said is so important about um, missing all that stuff behind the words um, because it is very, very much for a lot of parents, I know it certainly is in our house, walking on eggshells around our kids because we know at any minute they could erupt into this crazy tantrum that uh, goes on for hours and then throw away everything else that was planned for the rest of the night including you know a, an easy bedtime routine like you know if they lose it that's it so we just want to keep them happy 
and yeah. you know give them what they want and and that's a real challenge for a lot of parents i you know i totally understand that and it is a balancing act and the um in the example you gave of course you know sometimes you do that you know i don't know what to do or you're sitting on the floor i can't reach it from the floor and then they have to come and i mean there's lots of ways to do that you do that some of the time and sometimes they say i want a car and you get up and you you know you don't make it difficult but sometimes you do and when you do it's it's not just that you're having the interaction last longer but in that situation the child gets the opportun opportunity to learn patience to learn i'm uncomfortable with this i don't like it but the motivation of being in an interaction and knowing what's going to come or hoping what's going to come allows them to build up their discomfort muscle so many children um, that I work with who are on the, on the spectrum are so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. And so I'm not looking to try to make anybody uncomfortable, but I'm also not looking for most of the kids I see, for them to be happy all the time. But I totally understand what you're saying. It's especially after a certain point in the day, you can't, you can't take the risk of upsetting the apple cart. But when you can, there's a lot to be learned from the challenge. And I, I like the way Dr. Greenspan talked about that, whether it was in Engaging Autism or in, in radio shows, he talked about uh, building up the frustration tolerance yeah. and that you don't want to do it in the moment where you're in a rush to go to the dentist or whatever. You want to do it when you have, you know, it's a Saturday morning, you have the whole day, nowhere to go let's play and have fun and let's see if I can just push a little bit, push a little bit, push a little bit. Cause like you said, if, if the child never learns that they have to wait for things and then they're going to be forced to do that in the real world and break down. So getting that practice with the person that they feel the most comfortable with is the best and easiest way to, as you said, build that muscle, uh, discomfort muscle and to build that emotional range mm -hmm. the emotional range is so important to have that and when you were talking about reciprocity and understanding that the other person might have something to say and waiting till the other person finishes how is that different from theory of mind or is that basically the same one gets to theory of mind by lots of reciprocity so when when one is you know a four-month-old baby a, a six-month-old baby i have a six-month-old grandson i just came back from seeing him he he can be in his bouncy chair and i come up and i at this point i, I just smile at him and he knows that i'm not his mom and he thinks this is hilarious just that there's a face that's not his mom's so he laughs when he sees me and then i'll make a noise and then he'll make a noise and then I won't do anything but smile and there's a pause and then he makes a noise and then I make a noise and he makes a noise and I make a noise and we stop so what he's learning is the pattern of I do something she does something I do something she does something that's babies can learn patterns that's what they learn is patterns now he's um thankfully 
typically developing. But if you're, if you're a baby that has sensory differences or um, visual differences, it's not easy to pick up on that. You can maybe go two back and forths and then you hear a noise out on the street and that dysregulates you so that your um, opportunities to do that kind of stuff are limited. And then you get older and then you get to be 18 months old and you're supposed to be talking and you're not talking and people start to teach you words and you're smart so you learn words but what you've lost is this all the opportunities for this back and forth stuff and that's where that's the pre-linguistics that's the nonverbal stuff that's the magic and i want i want everybody to know that that's where the magic is and that it's not it's it's not um, baby play unless you're playing with a baby you can do that same kind of work with an older child based on the things that they like to do and they like to talk about do you have any more examples of how you would work on that with someone say who's just going through adolescence maybe they're anywhere from 10 to 17 years old and they haven't developed these skills yet um Okay, I work with a boy who is 14, and he's verbal. He currently loves basketball, knows a lot of basketball facts. We'll talk basketball facts forever. Um, but he is, he's a black and white thinker. And it's, it's all based on what he thinks is right. And so, I'm out of Atlanta, and a few years ago, Atlanta was in the Super Bowl, and they played the Patriots, and the Patriots won. So this boy hates Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the worst. Everybody knows Tom Brady is the worst. And so when he comes in, we talk about some basketball facts, or football facts. And um, then we'll start talking about the Super Bowl. Let's talk about the Super Bowl, and then he starts talking about how he hates Tom Brady. And um, I said, you know what, Max, let's, I want to talk about something else for a minute. What does your mom think about you? And, oh, my mom loves me. Why does she love you? Well, because I try hard at school, and I'm really smart, and I'm good at football, and I'm all this stuff. And I said, hmm, I wonder what Tom Brady's mom thinks about him. And he says, Tom Brady is bad. I said, I don't know. Let's think about that. Is this his mom? And it took a while for him to think about his, it's, this is not Tom Brady, this is somebody's mom. And we talked a lot about what she might feel about him and that, oh, well, maybe she loves him. Why do you think she loves him? And then he was able to think about why she might love him, but he started to think about Tom Brady in a different way. That's different thinking than what he's used to. And now um, we talk about stuff like that all the time because what I am helping him do, I hope, is to think about things differently, to, to um, make his thinking more sophisticated, not trying to teach him more words or to teach him that everybody's mother loves them, but to interact with him in such a way that he connects those dots on his own. Right. So we do that kind of stuff. Um, and, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say, what about a child who's nonverbal, who might be a teenager? The kids that I have that are nonverbal are really, really interesting to work with, with for me. And that right now, I don't have any kids that are nonverbal and teenagers, but I have um, a handful of kids that are six, seven, eight years old. And we work a lot on engagement and reciprocity and problem solving. A lot of these kids that are nonverbal have significant motor problems. And so um, those motor problems get more in their way than the fact that they're not using words. Because because of their significant motor concerns, they can't demonstrate that they understand much. And so it's to me, it's about... Um, building the relationship with them, me getting better at understanding how their neurological system works so that I can become a better listener, so that I can become a better interactor with them, um, so that I know how long I have to wait sometimes if I give them a direction. I sometimes have to wait 30 seconds, which is a really long time when you're in an interaction. You know, hey, will you give me that spinner? And, you know, they're walking around the room, walking around the room, walking around the room. They walk past the spinner. They can't get to it, walking around the room, and then finally get the spinner and bring it back. Um, so we have, we spend a lot of time doing that. Now, and so when we're on augmentative communication systems now with some of these kids, um, I work a lot on reciprocity. So they'll, um, I got all kinds of candy. I, it's bad, I know. I've got all kinds of candy, though, because people will ask for candy. So if a child says, kind of in a memorized motor pattern, I want Skittles, but I know he doesn't want Skittles, but we're working on um, motor direct or more specific motor movement. Um, I'll say, oh, Skittles? Do you want Skittles? Now I know he doesn't like want Skittles, but then he'll go back and on accident, he'll say, I want Skittles. And I'll say, well, I know I heard that. Do you want Skittles? I'll get them. And he'll go back again and say, I want Skittles again. So we're having a back and forth interaction. Eventually he'll say, I want Laffy Taffy. And then we ask, then I ask him what color Laffy Taffy. He tells me what color Laffy Taffy. So we have a back and forth interaction going. In that back and forth interaction, he is learning all this pre-linguistic stuff. The pre-linguistic stuff is important whether you're verbal or nonverbal. And particularly with older kids who are nonverbal, they don't get any work on pre-linguistic stuff anywhere else. But there is a feeling that you get with somebody when they get you. When, they, when you understand what they're saying and they understand what you're saying and they know that you know them, I think everybody should have that. And if a child, because of their individual differences, if it's harder for them to get that interaction with somebody, then I wanna be able to help their parents get, them with that, get that with them as often as they can. And that's part of the, why, part of the reason why I do that. But, you know, from a purely speech and language piece, it's because that part of the speech and language piece, the pre-linguistic part, is what will give them the drive 
to work harder, to say I want Skittles three times when it gets frustrating because we have a relationship and we have a connection and this is how communication works and that's, how, what, that's what people have to do to communicate. We go through, um, typically developing people, go through in, in our interactions, back and forth interactions where communication breaks down and we identify and repair all the time. And it's important that um, as a speech and language therapist that the kids that I work with know how to do that too. Yeah, and, and while I was saying that Jean Christian mentioned we don't remember pre-verbal, um, what I do remember myself being neurotypical as a young child in kindergarten, um, I remember trying, going to school and find, finding out that I was in afternoon kindergarten and I found out that my cousin, my twin cousins were in the morning class of kindergarten. And I was so excited to tell my teacher that my cousins, my cousin was Jody or whatever. And I was so excited and I went up and I said, Jody's my, my friend. Cause I couldn't remember the word cousin. And she was like, oh, that's nice. I was like, no, no, Jody's my friend. And I must've said it like 20 times. I was so excited, but I couldn't remember the word cousin. And I just remember being disappointed that she didn't get it. And then the next day or whatever, she came up to me and I remember she said, Jody's your cousin. Oh, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I just remember that feeling of not being able to communicate what you had inside of you and wanting to share that. And I imagine that our kids feel that constantly, especially the nonverbal kids with so many motor challenges that um, have brains that are perfectly intact, but their bodies just won't cooperate. Imagine how frustrating that must be to not be able to go and grab that spinner or whatever. And, and I notice it with my son who, um, you know, from a distance or from pictures might look neurotypical in a lot of ways. Um, but then when I'm interacting with him, um, a lot of times I'll notice that delay. I'll, I'll say something and because he's now very verbal, even though he, he speaks like um, a little more like a preschooler, like he has you know some speech impediments or whatever that as he's developing. Um, so he seems more like a five-year-old than a 10-year-old, but even so he's so verbal and, and always chatting and blah, 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 blah. And I notice sometimes I'll say something and I won't wait because I forget about that. And then, you know, it will be like literally a minute later and I'll feel, I'll see a response or I'll, I can't remember anything specific, unfortunately, but something like that. Like if I asked him to get something or whatever, like a minute later, I'll be like, oh, oh, he got it. <laughs> you know, so um, that, that part is also so important to understand, like you said, getting to know their neurological system, getting to know the individual differences of the child you're with so that you know that this is harder for them and I have to wait a bit longer and, and not assuming that, um, this is something we haven't talked about yet, but always assuming that there is a why behind the behavior. So, um, the, the, the latest thing that our son is doing is, uh, screaming at the top of his lungs, seemingly for fun, like, like every few seconds, ah! you know, and while I'm driving him to school and I think he picked it up because one of the chi children at school tends to have a lot of tantrums and screams a lot. 
And so I think he just picked that up because he was more around this child this year than in previous years. And um, in past years, he's picked up a lot of different stims of other kids that will see him come home and doing, will say, oh, you know, um, who does that? And he'll say so-and-so or whatever. And we'll say, oh, okay, it, like, that's great. He's in showing interest yeah. in peers now and he's imitating peers and that's a developmental stage. But the screaming has been really disruptive. <laughs> I mean, the, hit, the hitting in the face and kicking was disruptive when he was uh, younger. And, and now the screaming is always something, right? So um, just, you know, we went through that whole thing of, Shh, no, don't do it. Like, stop. And trying to do the punishment thing. And that's had the opposite effect because now he just does it more and more. So it makes me think that, when he's somehow excited or dysregulated, he's screaming to calm himself down or whatever. I, it could be, who knows? But um, it could really spiral into a power struggle if you're assuming he's doing it to be a nuisance. Right. If he's doing it intentionally to bother you. <laughs> yeah. Which he's not. There's no, right. He's not. But anybody, like I'm thinking, oh my goodness, when we get on this airplane for Christmas vacation. <laughs> Yeah. For three hours and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs who knows who's going to be sitting around us like that could be an absolute nightmare <laughs> yeah, yes and you know how do you convey to all these people you saying shh isn't going to make him stop and he almost doesn't have control over it like all we can do is try and distract him with fun activities i guess um <laughs> You know, well, you know better than I what would work. Um, you know, in the meantime, I assume you've covered up your ears and whispered. Oh, Does that do anything? So, like, if you if if it is because he's getting excited, the co-regulation, you being, you know, calm and quiet. Does that help him at all? Yeah, so I went through the gamut of, of different strategies like that, and what he knows now is, I shouldn't, he'll, and he'll say as he's screaming, like, ah, it's too loud, I shouldn't scream, <laughs> Hurt, hurts uh, so-and-so's ears, because one kid at school wears headphones, and the sound is overwhelming, yeah. so he, he was on the way home from school, so he was telling me, so-and-so doesn't like screaming, and I said, oh yeah, he doesn't like it, you know how... You know how you don't like mama to brush your hair? Do you want me to brush your hair with a brush? No! Like, yeah, that, that's, how my, that's how so-and-so is. He can't, it hurts his ears a lot, just like it hurts when mama brushes your hair. And so trying to get him to have that perspective taking, but, but yeah, doing the affect, like when he sees like, but he also likes the cause and effect. So if he thinks it's like, I started something silly the other day that also backfired, I, I said, be quieta. I just used a silly accent, um, like my uh, East European grandmother would have said, or whatever. And and he he started laughing, and so he went ah, and went, be quieta. And then he kept screaming so that he could hear me say that. And then now he thinks it's funny, so now he's going be quieta. He's I don't know how he says it, but he made up. So now it's a it's a fun what we're describing here. It's this fun reciprocal game that we're doing that's playful and and that's great but it doesn't get rid of the screaming. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the good news is, is that it's impressive that in the beginning he was able to say that so-and-so does it at school when you asked that he was able to, when he was at home, 
put him, have a mental picture and know what it was you were talking about and talk from that mental picture. That's a huge deal that he's able to do that because he's starting to become more abstract in the way he thinks. Huge deal. Now that doesn't help you on an airplane, but <laughs> it, that's nice. And I wonder if um, you could play that game at home. You know, we're gonna play the screaming game at home and play it for 15 minutes and then walk out of the room and we're not gonna play it here. And though he may try again, if you just say, no, 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 we can go back in the room to see if you can think, I play it here, I don't play it here. And in the meantime, have a hundred things to distract him with on the plane. Yeah, um, I tried that um, actually yesterday. So on the way to school, every time we stopped at a stop sign or red light, I said, okay, now you can scream. Let's get it all out, get it all out of you. Ah! And then I did it too. And so we did all the screams. Like, oh, shh. Light is green. Shh. Okay, we're driving. And then he screams like, oh, no, no. You have to wait till we stop. You have to wait till we stop. So that kind of worked a little bit. And then when we got home, I said, oh, we need a place to scream. Okay, no, you can't scream at the table. Let's go over here. But he didn't like that. I was like, oh, go, go, go. Like every time he's going, no, no, go over there. Go over there to scream. You're like, no. And at this time, he's hungry. He's tired. He's, yeah. Yeah. So it's not the best time. But um, thankfully, there's a 6 a.m. flight. First thing in the morning is his best, so <laughs> fingers crossed. Okay. Yes, well, that's going to go well. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But um, <laughs> I just wanted to bring up that example to give listeners that, that um, distinction between, you know, it, especially I find the parents whose children have just had the diagnosis, they especially feel that pressure to, like, correct things or put things on track before the child gets too far behind kind of thing as opposed to just seeing it you know what we're on different paths now you've got to throw all of those expectations out the window and just focus on the child you have in front of you and and um to show you that you know there may be lots of things that are happening that you don't necessarily want to happen like my kid's screaming or my kid's not speaking yet or my kid whatever but at the same time, you can have fun. Like we had the Be Quieta game going on or the Let's Scream at the Red Light game. And those are the things that you're talking about today, these pre-linguistic skills where we're yeah. having this social, playful game back and forth that he wouldn't be able to do by himself. He needed me to do it. And I was the toy. So he's having fun with mama. And it's a social, shared thing as opposed to... Um, you know, playing a video game by yourself or something like that. Um, so I don't know, is there anything else you wanted to bring uh, to the listeners about, about the importance of the pre-linguistic skills? Um, you know, I, I think I, we've talked about what the major focus of what I wanted to, what I wrote this about, but it's, Prelinguistic skills are not just pre-language, they are pre-social. And I, wanna, um, I want people to walk away with the understanding that social is a big deal and language is a big deal and they are intertwined. And, you know, getting back to your son's screaming, 
in the car, though, you know, he was screaming to get you to say, you know, be quiet. What he was learning was, I got to wait, I got to wait. And then he, it comes out, oh, oh but I got to wait. That is a huge deal. That is a social um, lesson that he's learning while he's having fun, while he's motivated. And while it may take a lot of those before the screaming is impacted, that is making a difference about how he will use language later. It looks like, you know, it seems from the outside that you're just working on getting him to stop screaming. But in doing it the way you're doing it, you are impacting his later language development in a big way. Uh, as opposed to, but then, this is my worry. On the one hand, we're doing that those positive things. And on the other hand, we might be doing the negative things. Like, uh, every time you scream, I'm taking that away from you. Or every time you scream, I'm opening the windows, because I tried that too. And he's like, ah, hates the windows being open. I'm like, okay, no screaming. And the second I close the windows, ah, like, oh, I have to open the windows, no. So even though he knows he doesn't want the window open, he's not able to not scream. So that's what made me realize, okay, it's some kind of compulsion that he has to scream. It's not, because he obviously doesn't want the windows open, yet he's continuing to scream. Right. So um, it's, I think, you know, the important thing is not to use those punishment kinds of things, which we definitely have tried. Well, yeah, um, we think like adults. <laughs> and, and that stuff would work for us, so we think therefore it must work for them but it, they don't think like adults. No, no. And, and they don't learn like adults learn. Young children learn like young children. They learn through living it and doing it and interacting with it and smelling it. Whereas we as adults can learn a different language by sitting at a table and looking at words and saying and imitating. We can learn a language that way. A little kid can't learn a language by somebody telling them what to say. A little kid has to learn it and feel it and know how it works. And that's where the prelinguistics come in. Well, that's a perfect way to sum it up. Uh, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so thank you very much for taking the time to speak today. And for listeners and viewers, if you go to affectautism.com, I'll have a write-up with some links to uh, some of the past blog posts I've done related to this topic. I've had a few um, other speech language pathologists on the podcast talking about these issues as well. If you wanted to get um, a broader feel for this type of thing. And um, it, it was uh, great to meet you uh, virtually in person, Mary Beth, for the first time. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do another podcast again. I would love that. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.